ready our corporates for the end of LIBOR after 2021. Welcome to Global Risk Regulators podcast series about banking and financial regulation. For more about GRR, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. The London Interbank Offered Rates, or LIBOR, have been crucial benchmarks for pricing of huge swathes of financial products from derivatives, bonds, through to corporate loans. But following rate-rigging scandals that emerged after 2007-09 global financial crisis, regulators decided that LIBOR was simply not up to the job of providing trustworthy, robust and reliable interest rate benchmarks anymore. This saw the development and promotion of alternative risk-free rates, or RFRs. In this podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Subhadra Rajapa, Head of US Strategy at Société Générale and Sarah Boyce, Associate Director, Policy and Technical at the Association of Corporate Treasurers. They are going to discuss the issues companies have been grappling with in making that transition to the new alternative interest rate benchmarks. This discussion covers areas such as the impact of COVID-19 on those transition arrangements, issues with legacy contracts, difficulties with the construction of RFRs, and whether companies will make the transition on time. So, Sarah, what is the state of readiness of corporates in terms of shifting from LIBOR to alternative reference rates such as Sonia for sterling and SOFA for US dollars? And what kind of issues have they had with that transition? And, and sort of, you know, how, how has COVID-19 impacted it? I think when we come to state of readiness, it can be summed up with one word, which is mixed. Okay. I think, Justin, the largest, most sophisticated corporates, and, and this is certainly true in the UK and to a lesser extent in other markets, um, um, they are very much aware and have started transitioning and have started to issue under the ref- um, the risk-free reference rates. So yeah. they're, they're beginning to move move across, um, but it's a very small number of corporates, to be clear, that really in that position, and the vast majority may well now be aware that LIBOR is going to disappear, but really have, have not particularly engaged with the whole process. And, and certainly COVID um, has, has acted as a major sort of distraction uh, for corporates through this year. As, uh, perhaps understandably enough, they have been very focused on ensuring liquidity. They've had, they've had yeah. more immediate problems, might we say, than uh, the continuation or otherwise of, of, of LIBOR. Having, having said that, I think the delay has been sort of a, a blessing and, and a curse, really. So, so obviously, you know, it, it's less than ideal. But what that has meant is that it has given the, the banks a, an opportunity, really, to continue with their own LIBOR transition preparations. Yeah. So that as and when corporates have been able to start to re-engage in the process, and, and they're beginning to do so now, and certainly as we go into the to the new year, I would expect to see a, um, a lot more activity in this area. But what it's meant is that the banks have actually been able to you know, almost finalise their offerings, if you like, and, yep. and, and just get themselves in a much more prepared state. Um, because one of the challenges that we've had throughout the process, really, is that it's been a little bit circular in that you know, there have been a lot of debates about, well, corporates need to say what they want. 
and the yeah. corporate saying, well, actually, you know, banks need to tell us what's what's available. So in, in a way, COVID has, has kind of broken that that endless circle, if you like, okay. um, and, and put, put made bank readiness much more um, instant. I, I think the other issues, just very briefly, for, for corporates have been more around similar challenges to, to the ones that the, the banks have had around systems readiness, infrastructure preparedness, you know, general market liquidity type of yeah. um, type of challenges. And Subhadra, I mean, what what are you seeing in terms of readiness amongst your clients? I think I agree with Sarah. For the most part, in the U.S., I would say that uh, the larger corporates are a lot more uh, ready and prepared, okay. uh, especially the ones that issue debt as well as hedge their their debt issuance. Uh, among the smaller corporates, you get a mix: some that are a lot more aware of what's going on. Others that, uh, you know, especially with COVID, the expectation, broadly speaking, was that the timeline for uh, for the switch away from LIBOR would be extended. And after the FCA came out and said that they're going to stick to their, their current deadline, I think there was a little bit of a, a mad scramble, if you will, to try to, to get up to speed on what's going on. Yeah. Um, really, uh, echoing what Sarah said, I think it's mostly about setting, having systems in place, accounting. It's also a lot of, uh, of legal paperwork that needs to be adjusted, uh, yeah. fallback language, uh, and, and the like. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done from the, the smaller corporates. And I'm not sure that they have enough bandwidth to be able to deal with um, the volume of work uh, that is ahead of them. Right. Okay. Um, Subhadra, maybe you could go first on the next question. Um, so, you know, okay, just unpacking a little bit some of the things you're saying. So, where are we at in terms of legacy contracts, their fallback documentation? Uh, I mean, there's been suggestions that could be quite a lot of litigation around these sort of areas. So, are there things being being done around resolution, arbitration pro processes? the repapering of legacy contracts and dealing with value transfer issues. I mean, a lot of these things are very tricky and complicated. Where are we at with that? I think the ARC has done a very good job of coming up with fallback language for new contracts. Okay. Um, you know, the industry has adopted a lot of the fallback language for reference, but uh, you know, broadly speaking, a lot of the other products, uh, they've not been very quick at adopting the fallback language. Uh, but really, the tricky part is the legacy contracts and what we call, uh, what the FCA has termed tough legacy. And yeah. the UK, as you might know, is work, has a working group on uh, starting risk free rates that was established to address these tough legacy uh, issues. And, and really what the market seems to be, uh, you know, the proposed solutions, I would say, are on the legislative side, uh, change leg legislation. The tricky part there is that, you know, the legislation is very, very uh, jurisdiction specific. So there needs to be international consistency among the different regions. There's also issues that are specific to, 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 uh, to products. For instance, linear derivatives are easy with the ISDA protocol, but more complex derivatives or bilateral transactions that happen in derivative space, uh, there, there needs to be more work done because it's possible in a bilateral trade that one counterparty adheres to the protocol and the other one doesn't. And then yeah. you start getting into more products like bonds, callable bonds, for, for, for instance, they have embedded optionality in it. Um, and uh, it's going to be, and structured notes, for instance, again, there's a lot of work to be done because there's a lot of embedded optionality in these structured notes. So dealing with these issues are going to be quite tricky. And I would say that a lot of work needs to be done on that front.
that echoes what others have said as well. Um, and, and Sarah, what, what are you seeing in this regard at the Association of Corporate Treasurers? Completely agree with Subhadra. It's it's quite a, a again mixed um, situation out there. One of the largest challenges is around international consistency and just trying to make sure that um, the approach that's being taken in in one jurisdiction. So, for example, the, the UK um, have legislation going um, into Parliament sort of towards the end of this year, early part of next year on tough legacy. Europe are doing something slightly different and the US something slightly different again. Yeah. And for your, your average corporate, that makes life incredibly complicated. Just trying to work through exactly what sort of um, fallback language they need to be um, accepting, I guess, yeah. is, uh, is, is going to be the challenge for them. Maybe you could pick up, uh, go first on this this question, because um, I know it's and that has um, uh, bothered corporates to a certain extent, and that and that's around the construction of the risk-free rates, in that they are backward-looking and LIBOR is more forward-looking. And apparently, this is being disrupted or make difficult to create products such as export finance or working capital products. So just wondered how is the industry resolving this issue and what kind of initiatives are afoot and can they adequately replace the forward-looking aspects of LIBOR? The lack of a forward-looking term rate does make some products very problematic, particularly yeah. in trade finance. And the approach has been taken certainly in the UK, and I suspect that Subhadra could um, give some colour on what's happening in the US, I apologise, um, is that there's been a use cases for forward-looking term rates um, were identified back in 2019. Um, and trade finance is one of those. And as, as a result of that, there has been an, an exercise in the UK to start to produce forward-looking term rates based on uh, Sonia. Yeah. And there are currently four, sort of three or four, it varies by the week, it seems, um, potential providers of, of that data that are currently producing data in beta. So it's not actually yet available for, for, for use in anger, okay. but it's there or thereabouts. And and so that's that's going to be something that's going to provide a solution, but it's very much for a very specific problem. And I think one of the things that I would emphasize um, is that risk-free rates, yes, they're backward-looking, they're compounded in arrears, they're overnight, they are very, very different characteristics to, to the LIBOR that everybody is very used to using. Yeah. For a lot of corporates, they do not necessarily need to move to SOFA or SONIA. They may find that there's an alternate reference rate that is more appropriate for their needs, but that just because traditionally they've always just deferred to, to LIBOR, that was almost the the easy thing to do yeah um, yeah yeah i think i think going forwards we will see a lot more market fragmentation where you'll have larger more sophisticated corporates and those that need to hedge using the uh, rfrs and the the smaller if you like more or more straightforward requirements may look to use some sort of central bank rate or fixed rate as an alternate and Subhadra, from you know take, taking your perspective as 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 a banker and being in the US as well, um, I mean, what's happening there with with term rates and this issue, you know, for certain products are not suitable for RFRs and so on. I'd like to actually pick up where Sarah left off, which is a key point, which is that there are 
some corporates that might issue that might start using a forward-looking term rate. But the question is, how are they going to hedge that exposure? Because a lot of the derivatives products have backward-looking rates. So this, yeah. I think, is a is a very key issue because a lot of corporates that currently issue, you know, there's no uh, mismatch between their assets and liabilities, uh, given the fact that they're both forward-looking and pegged to LIBOR. That I think is a, is a very key issue. But within the U.S. market, broadly speaking, there are seven diff- different segments. Uh, the loan market, for instance, they have prepayment characteristics. So uh, applying a backward-looking average rate is not going to work for them. Uh, in the consumer uh, product space, for instance, uh, mortgages, uh, consumers need to be uh, informed 45 days in advance before the, there's a change in interest rate. So they would prefer a forward-looking uh, rate. Um, and, and broadly speaking, um, there's uh, work that's being done. You have uh, the uh, the CCPs are trying to come up with a forward-looking term rate for SOFR. Okay. And there's also being work done uh, to come up with a credit-sensitive forward-looking term rate. For instance, the Bank Yield Index, Ameribor, as well as AXI, an index that was proposed by uh, Daryl Duffy are all being worked on. But again, a lot of these products are in their very, very, uh, you know, I would say in their infancy and, and more work needs to be done for a broader adoption by the market. And then right. there's the issue with bifurcation, which is you know, part of the market staying in SOFR and another part of the market staying with Ameribor, and that raises issues with liquidity. No, I, I, I can well imagine. It's, it's um, as Sarah says, saying, a kind of fragmentation going on there. So as you know, the US Department of Justice stated that it does not intend to challenge the IBOR fallback supplement and protocol drafted by ISDA on the grounds of antitrust concerns. So could you maybe describe how significant this ruling is, what it means for the industry in terms of moving to RFRs, and maybe uh, lastly, are there any other potential judicial or legal stumbling blocks out there that that could trip people up? I think this is a very important step uh, in uh, before the ISDA protocol could be introduced in the second half of, of January. Um, the, the importance is that now you have a, a statement from the, from the Department of Justice. Uh, this will ensure uh, perhaps that there won't be legal challenges in the adoption of ISDA protocol uh, as it relates to antitrust rules, yeah. uh, not just in the U.S., but also other jurisdictions. Um, legal entities uh, are going to be uh, you know, much more comfortable uh, adopting the, the protocol. And it also clears the way for the FCA perhaps to make uh, a proclamation, uh, if you will, that LIBOR is an underrepresented benchmark well before the 2021 deadline. That would trigger the pre-cessation trigger and there is the fallback and that would uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, get the market um, to adopt the, the ISDA fallbacks, um, especially for market participants that are sort of hesitant to adopt the ISDA protocol, that yeah. might be something that might get them, uh, you know, to sort of nudge them closer towards adopting the, the ISDA protocol. And Sarah, do, do you have any views on the DOJ ISDA ruling and whether there are other potential legal regulatory stumbling blocks out there left to tackle? Well, uh, <laughs> Probably, I think is the answer to that second question. But on the uh, is the protocol. I think that it's uh, Subhadra is absolutely right. Hopefully, this will act as a real impetus to, to to particularly the sort of the interbank market as it looks to transition away. Um, yeah. The automatic adoption of protocol is slightly more problematic for corporates. 
um, really, and it comes back to the point that Zubadra made earlier about hedging and hedge effectiveness. Um, we are counselling that, that corporates look carefully before they just automatically sign the ISDA protocol. And that is purely because what we don't want to happen or what they don't want to happen is for the unintended consequence of them losing economic hedge effectiveness yeah. as a result of their loans falling back to one particular reference rate. And as a result of the ISDA protocol, their swaps that in theory are hedging that loan falling back to something different. So, so it's really more of just a sort of one to watch for, for corporates in particular, where they where they have that hedging um, exposure. Um, as far as other potential judicial stumble stumbling blocks, as, as I slightly flippantly said, um, I, I suspect that there may be, I, I, I understand, and, and again, Subhadra may be in a better position to comment than me, but I understand that in the US, just getting the, the what we might refer to as the tough legacy legislation through yeah. the US legislature um, might be easier said than done. Um, and, and I think that that then sort of leads us into the general sort of timing challenge um, of, of, of the whole exercise. Subhadra, do you, do you have any any views on potential legal regulatory stumbling blocks of Sort of yet to be resolved. There could be, and I think that there's a lot of uh, of uh, of products where uh, there's a lot of of lawyers that are playing clo paying close attention yeah. uh, to the <laughs> language and and being careful about uh, and deliberate about how they're uh, approaching this issue from uh, from a from a corporate corporate's perspective. Um, but yes, I mean, the, there's value transfer associated with uh, the ISDA protocol. There's value transfer associated with uh, any of the fallbacks being triggered for any of the of the products that could uh, potentially lead to uh, you know um, you know litigation. Um, it's it's uh, also an issue of what happens with um, you know certain uh, you know tough legacy contracts where there's no fallbacks. And yeah. how does that get dealt with? And that's really where a legal solution, a, a legislative solution is probably appropriate um, as a catch-all, if you will. And again, that doesn't preclude um, you know, litigation. It just perhaps uh, eases uh, you know, some of the, 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 um, the issues that might, that might rise. But again, I don't see that as a, as a full catch-all for, uh, for, uh, for legal action. Right, right. Okay, okay, Sarah. Let me let me come back to you for the for now now for the last question, which is, um, you know, the regulators want libel to disappear after the end of twenty twenty one. Are you confident that the industry is on track to achieve that? And if not, do you think the regulators will show more patience, even though the FCA's legal powers to compel panel banks to compile libel come to an end by that deadline? If we don't have a second wave, if you know relatively normal market conditions continue to prevail, I I I believe that we are in a relatively good position to by the end of 2021, pretty much be be free of libel. I, I think there's a bigger concern around some of the products that Subhadra mentioned earlier, which are much more in the sort of consumer arena rather than the either corporate or interbank arena. Okay. Um, but I think I think generally speaking, if if I speak to corporates, certainly in the UK and actually in the US as well, they are they are relatively sanguine that you know by the middle of next year they will be 
you know, there or thereabouts, or certainly they'll be in a position to go, no, this absolutely will not work. But at the moment, we are not hearing, certainly from our corporate community, that this okay. will not happen. So cautiously okay. optimistic, I guess, would be the answer. Yeah, no, they, it sounds like they're uh, they're on track. And um, well, Subhadra, just to wrap up, what, what are your thoughts on, on that whole area? So I think this is a very unique situation, right? In the past, when there's a regulation that's put forth, whether it be Dodd-Frank or the Basel three regulations, there's a very, very clear timeline and a deadline, given the fact that um, the regulators, um, you know, regulate certain entities that are required to comply. In the case of benchmark reform, there are no regulatory entities in the U.S. that actually um, you know, are in charge of, of, of the benchmark. It's controlled by the FDA. And I would say that both the FDA as well as the Fed and other legal entities in the U.S. are very, very committed to seeing the 2021 deadline being met. So I think that there's definitely commitment on the side of the regulators to see this through. The question for me is one of preparedness. If we get into the middle of next year or late next year, and we still see very, very low volumes in SOFA derivatives and very um, and markets largely are not prepared for the transition, then perhaps there's a case to be made for the regulators to rethink that 2021 deadline. But as of now, I think that they're very much on, uh, in, you know, sort of in target to sort of uh, see that 2021 deadline come to fruition. Yeah, and, and I guess it'd be a bit counterproductive if the regulators were to say, well, we could be a bit flexible because everyone would just simply slow down, I guess. I'd like to thank Sarah and Subhadra for taking part in Global Risk Regulators regulatory podcast series. And if you'd like to listen to more regulatory podcasts, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com and you can also subscribe via Acast, Spotify and Apple iTunes. And finally, I'd like to wish everyone listening to stay safe and well. Thank you. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.